Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. It's Gentleman's Hour today on Trending. And oh boy, someone wrote to me on social media last week. Uh, when I was talking about some of the church's teaching on what marriage is, and he said, can you tell that to my wife, please? I'm kind of scared of her. So we're going to talk about what do you do when you're scared to say something to your spouse? Because let's be true, wives can be scared to say something to their husbands, and husbands can be scared sometimes to say something to their wives. And I will admit, I have been guilty of this, and my husband has told me at times. So we're going to talk about that. What do you do when you're scared to say something to your spouse? could be years into marriage, early on in marriage. Important topic. We're also taking your questions during this gentleman's hour. The number is 1-888-914-9149. Or you can ask your question now on Instagram. We're happy to take it. And today joining me is Father Robert Spitzer. He's the president of the Magis Center and the Spitzer Center. And he speaks the reasonability of our faith. You can find incredible free online articles and learning modules to dive deeper into your faith for free at CredibleCatholic.com by Father Robert Spitzer. That's CredibleCatholic.com. Today we're going to talk during our weekly Gentleman's Hour about the role of fatherhood in conveying the faith that is passing on religion, specifically our Catholic faith, and also scientific evidence for God and Jesus. Father Spitzer, welcome back to Trending. Always great to be with you, Tim Marie. Thank you for having me. I found that faith has been harder to grasp, at least for my generation, the millennial generation down, for men in particular. And it begs the question, what are men looking for and why is it more difficult for men to grasp religion? Well, very typically, um, men, but n not all the time, and, and this is not true for women all the time either, but uh, very typically, um, men do look for some kind of intellectual validation uh, before they will give an assent. And the intellectual validation that's in these days is more scientific than it is philosophical. Now, previously, philosophical validation was um, a truly uh, an, an instrument that helped a lot of men uh, to affirm their faith, affirm their belief, and you know, consistency between reason and faith, which men do need um, very, very much. I mean, some women absolutely do need that, too. Uh, but in particular, uh, men need it. We have a website that really concentrates um, on science and, and, and philosophy and logic and, you know, evidence for faith, evidence for God, the, the soul, for Jesus Christ, etc. 
And uh, the, the normal demographic, or, or big, huge demographic for that website, is about 68% uh, male, and uh, many of them are in that group uh, between 16 years old to about 35 years old. So uh, that's the, uh, the group that's looking, that's the group that's reading, because they're not just you know, looking at the website dropping off. They're reading articles, looking at videos, trying to get information. Uh, for those uh, who have remained in the faith and are still looking out there. So we really do have to get some of this over to our younger men uh, in particular. Of course, many of our younger women need the same thing. Uh, but as I said, boy, science is right now the key to a man's, not just his heart, but to his mind. But um, the man uh, is generally going to look for the intellectual validation, what we call intellectual conversion, mm -hmm. before right. the man will move to in, um, spiritual conversion and it's moral conversion. It's interesting you say that because you're talking about that intellectual conversion before spiritual and moral conversion. And you're right. touching truly those young men today, as you said, age 16 to 35, who are predominantly on your website, such as CredibleCatholic.com and the Magis Center. And I'm mm -hmm. curious to hear what some of their most common questions are about the scientific evidence for God and Jesus. Well, um, they, there are a variety of questions. I mean, some of them... Um, really believe, unfortunately, because of social media, they believe that science and faith are contradictory from the beginning. So they've read this in social media. Maybe they've heard it at school, but some guys come up to them and said to them, you know, science and faith are contradictory. You're completely naive. You know, you, you need a crutch, you know, and uh, uh, you're just being emotional. You're just being a baby and needing God and everything else. And course to a man you know this is like oh my gosh you know I didn't think I was being that rash but wow. uh, maybe I am mm -hmm. so um, the minute somebody says that and they don't have an answer and unfortunately in our catechetical classes we oftentimes ignore the intellectual conversion part we leap right to spiritual conversion and moral conversion and leave off the intellectual conversion which is good old what we call fundamental apologetics Evidence for God, evidence for the soul, evidence for Jesus Christ that is credible, it's scientifically validatable, and other evidence too besides science. Philosophical evidence is, is good when it's a good logical proof of God or uh, historical evidence for Jesus when you have good extra-biblical sources of evidence for Jesus and for his resurrection and so forth. So all these things are right in there. But for that poor guy to move, he's got to be able to, you know, answer that question or that objection that's been thrown out there because they not only are saying, hey, you need to have this if you're going to be intellectually credible. That's important for a man. But you also have to have this if you're not going to be kind of weak need. You know, you're not going to be naive and naive and weak need. Oh, my gosh. You know, you want two super insults to a guy. Uh, th th those are they. So, right. I mean, uh, so you put those two things together and the poor guy, you know, listen, we're talking with 16 to 30. They don't have enough life experience to say, right. oh, my prayer life dictates this way. When, right. you know, they open up in their prayer life, right? They open up in their mm -hmm. feelings. They get a, a sense of God's presence providentially through the experience of their lives and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. But uh, automatic. Share. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah absolutely. Feel unlonely. So, I'm curious to hear, Father, mm-hmm. so what would you say to someone who says, prove to me with science that God exists? Uh, well, I give them about four different, uh, uh, you know, uh, areas of evidence. I mean, one, ev- one kind of evidence uh, is for a beginning, not only of our universe, but a beginning of a multiverse or a string universe in higher dimensions, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, every young man knows what a multiverse is. I can assure you of this, or at least knows what it's supposed to be. And every, you know, man, I think young man, probably has some sense of multidimensional, you know, possibilities. You know, they can have parallel universes. They've all heard of it, right? They they, they watch the Big Bang Theory on TV Mm -hmm. or whatever they watch, uh, you know, and they get these these, uh, various uh, opinions. So they know these things. They know string theory allows for multidimensional uh, arrays of possible bubble universes and things. So you got to knock them all down with one uh, f- in one fell swoop. And there's uh, uh, several ways of doing it. One way, of course, of providing evidence to counter that is uh, Stephen Hawking and Thomas Hertog, um, you know, have recently written about, you know, a disproof of an infinite multiverse. And they have even said, by the way, Stephen Hawking and Thomas Hertog are well-known physicists. So if you're kind of into that stuff, you're going to say, wow, those two guys actually, you know, said that an infinite multiverse, uh, you know, can't exist. Now, Stephen Hawking is now deceased, but his last paper in the Journal of High Energy Physics, right, was right on this topic of an infinite multiverse being impossible. It could never have generated uh, our universe because you would have problems separating general relativity from quantum theory in the way that it's done in our universe. You, you basically, in order to get the infinite multiverse, you need a, a, a fractal system, basically, and that fractal system did not generate our universe or anything like it. So uh, Hawking and Hertog, uh, you know, put together this this theory that, that basically says you can't have an infinite uh, uh, multiverse generating this universe. In fact, the uni- the multi if there were a multiverse that generated this universe, that multiverse would have only generated a very small number of bubble universes, and it too, the multiverse, would have to have a beginning. So, wow, you put that out there, and all of a sudden, now the pl- uh, the, the 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 playing field is level. So, any multiverse that would generate it would have to have a beginning itself. Now, this uh, also is validated by another proof, which is called the Borda, Lincoln and Guth proof. Uh, Arvind Borda at the uh, University of California, Santa Barbara, Alan Guth has the chair of, uh, of uh, astrophysics here at MIT, and um, uh, Dr. Alexander Lincoln has is the director of the Institute of Cosmology um, at, um, at Tufts University in Boston. Now, these guys are, again, uh, pretty heavyweight guys uh, in the physics community, and so when you look at that, uh, they have a proof that basically says that uh, any inflationary um, uh, multiverse, right, uh, in, in an inflationary multiverse uh, or even an inflationary universe um, would have to have a beginning. In other words, anything which is expanding or has an average Hubble expansion greater than zero would have to have a beginning. So when you put BVG together, Board of Lincoln and Good together with uh, Hawking and Hertog, and then Thomas Banks has just done a number. Uh, he, again, he, heavyweight in the physics community. People would know 
uh, this name. And you, he, again, he is just putting a bullet hole in the, the infinite multiverse and, of course, uh, suggesting a beginning as well. And now you've got, of course, the problem with Boltzmann brains and brief brains, which is another uh, difficulty. But you put all this stuff together, and basically, if the infinite multiverse is out, then eternal inflation is out. And if eternal inflation and infinite multiverse are out, what you're talking about is a beginning of even a multiverse which could generate our universe. And a beginning is a very interesting thing in physics. Basically, uh, also BVG and entropy, by the way, there's another kind of evidence. All these things uh, actually apply um, to multiverses, to string universes in higher dimensional space, et cetera, et cetera. So all these things are there. And so you, you look at that and you, you put the, the evidence together and it's really strongly suggesting uh, a beginning of physical reality itself. Whether physical reality is conceived of as a multiverse, a string universe, whatever, that physical reality itself in whatever conception you want, if it has an average Hubble expansion greater than zero, uh, and it, it's going to have a beginning. Now, a beginning in physics, as I said, is very, very um, strange because it basically means a point before which there was no physical reality. There might have been a metaphysical reality like God, but there was no physical reality be before this point. Now, what does that mean? That means that physical reality went from nothing to something. And that's a very interesting concept indeed, because how can nothing make itself into something? Because the only thing that nothing can do is nothing, because it's nothing. And therefore, nothingness, when physical reality was nothing, it could not have moved itself to something by itself. Mm -hmm. That requires then that the there movement. must be some kind of a reality outside mm -hmm. of our physical universe, outside of physical reality itself, that must have caused it. And that reality outside of physical reality, let's call that for the moment God. Let's just mm -hmm. say it's a transcendent cause with the capability of creation, creatio ex nihilo, a creation out of nothing. Mm. And, you know, Father, it's so interesting to me because you, one of our producers, Maggie, in the background, and I are like looking at this going, this is mind blowing. It's very profound yeah. and it's on a level that I recognize many men are there. They're tracking with, they're fascinated by. And it's one of those moments in the mm -hmm. church where you see this great divide in terms of truly how men and women think differently. Not that I mean, women don't find this interesting oh, or fascinating, but we really yeah. do think so differently. And these proofs for the existence of God are not normal catechetical proofs that you ever hear. Well, they should be. I mean, that's why we produce those seven essential modules. That was to give a simplified version of those proofs. But I've got, you know, very complex books on these proofs as well, because these are very well-known physicists. This is not Bob Spitzer, uh, you know, right. saying this. This is Stephen Hawking, Thomas Hertog, Thomas Banks, you know, Arvind Borda, Alexander Vilenkin, uh, Alan Guth. I mean, these are like, you know, they're, they're heavyweights. And, and so this is, this is a really important thing. And by the way, uh, you, you know, uh, if you're looking at evidence for God, 
you can actually not only talk about a, a, a creator that is outside of physical reality and outside of space-time uh, physical systems altogether, you, you can actually show that that creator is a highly intelligent creator. And you can do this with a series of different kinds of evidence that are basically called fine-tuning coincidences. And these also are extremely fascinating. But the main thing is we've got to get this into a form. I've just completed a, um, um, a, a curriculum, you know, a program for the first or second semester, either one. It's a one-semester course, uh, senior year elective in uh, religion. And Fantastic. it is with Sophia Institute for Teachers. And it's called the, Ca uh, the Catholic Faith and Science. And it has all of these proofs. It has the fine-tuning coincidences. It has the need for a beginning of the universe, the, the, the cause of the beginning of the universe, phys uh, philosophical proofs for the existence of God. Everything is in there. I'm telling you, when these kids, especially the men, they start looking at this stuff. They go, what? Who, who said all this stuff? Hawking, Hurtuck. Okay. And, you know, all of a sudden it's got credibility in their mind. And then you start putting together the little pieces there along with the philosophy, along with the entropy, along with, um, you know, the, the fine-tuning coincidence, et cetera. You put it together and you should see the qualitative reaction. Just go to our website, CredibleCatholic.com. Click on endorsements and just take a look at what the student participants say after they've just taken a one semester course in this kind of science-based apologetics. Fantastic. It blows their mind. And it would be a program for husbands and sons to work on together, you know, in that senior, those last couple of years of, of high school, you know, especially if your husband's kind of trying to dive deeper into his faith, this would be a great program to have in your home that you can work through yourself. We'll post a link on social media to that from Sophia Institute. I'll be right back with Father Robert Spitzer here on Trending. This hour is sponsored by Solidarity HealthShare. Join thousands who choose ethical and affordable health care. Go to CatholicHealthShare.com. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome back to our weekly Gentleman's Hour today on Trending. Coming up, we're going to talk about what do you do when you're scared to say something to your wife especially when it's something really important about the way you're living your marriage, your family life. I think it's an important question, and I will raise my hand and say I have been guilty of this. My husband has said before, hey, I'm you know sometimes scared to approach you or say something about certain topics. And it's a good warning sign where my pride or my oversensitivity or emotion might be getting in the way, among other things. So we're going to talk about that fantastic article uh, from Focus on the Family about what to do when you're afraid to communicate with a spouse about sensitive issues. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray here on Relevant Radio. Joining me now 
is Father Robert Spitzer. Father Spitzer is the founder and president of the Magis Center, as well as the Spitzer Center. He speaks the reasonability of our faith. You can find incredible online free courses and learning modules to dive deeper into your faith at CredibleCatholic.com. That's CredibleCatholic.com. We're talking about scientific evidence for God and Jesus. And there online, you can walk through those modules, online courses and videos to dive deeper into your faith. I know it can be a challenge, especially for men, that you learn differently. You grasp with faith differently than women do. And sometimes our catechesis, most of the time, is not as conducive for the answers you are looking for, but the resources are there. So check out CredibleCatholic.com. Father Spitzer, I'd like to turn to the topic of family and fatherhood today during our weekly Mm -hmm. Gentleman's Hour and the important role that men have in passing on the faith, especially fathers Mm -hmm. to their children. Why is it that children predominantly practice or don't practice their faith based on how the father practices his faith during their upbringing. Yeah, I'll, maybe I'll just start with, with some statistics because they're sort of astounding and then uh, get right into your question. Um, uh, the Swiss study that was a pretty comprehensive study that was done a while back uh, showed that if um, both father and mother practice their faith, then there is about a 33% chance um, that uh, their, their, their children will practice regularly, like every Sunday. And then there's about a 42% chance that they will practice um, irregularly, so they'll, you know, sporadically throughout the year. And then there's about a 24% chance or something like that that they, um, that they won't practice at all. Okay, so you think, well, that's not terrific. What happens when the mother practices, but the father does not? So the father decides to cancel out. Only 2% of those children will practice their faith regularly. And then 32%. And then about 37%, 36%, something like that, will um, practice irregularly. And then get this, a whopping 60% will not practice at all. Now, you think to yourself, wow, wait a minute here. This is truly revelatory that somehow in fatherhood, right, something Mm -hmm. is communicated by that father figure and their resolution to go to church or to worship that's not just communicated to men, but to both men and women, to girls and boys. So they're picking up something from the father's participation or non-participation, which radically determines the, the likelihood that they will practice both regularly and irregularly. Now, uh, we have to think, well, what could that be? Why would it be that the, the mother uh, would uh, do that? What kind of signal... Um, you know, does the child expect from the mother, you know, that, you know, the mother would, um, you know, feel uh, obligated to follow uh, God or that she would want to practice God? You know, a child might just think, well, that's typical of mom. She probably likes to go uh, to church or something of that nature. 
Whereas when the father likes to go to church, there may be something that they find incongruous or interesting or, you know, something that might, uh, you know, show them that maybe they, they thought they were predisposed to think that their father might not be so inclined in that direction, not so inclined uh, maybe to uh, uh, to uh, worship or to be beholding to a deity outside of himself, whereas the mother might be more inclined to, to worship or to be beholding or to have a relationship with the deity outside of themselves. So the typical signal is that the father wants to be independent. The father wants to be self-sufficient. The mother, that's maybe some mothers do want to be self-sufficient and independent, but in many kids' signal system, they look at that and go, that's probably not the priority of the mother to be independent and self-sufficient, though clearly it is with someone. But the, if you look at the natural symbols in these things, just think for just a moment. My dad, who likes to be ordinarily independent and self-sufficient, doesn't ever want to ask for directions, uh, you know, on how to get anywhere, just has to do it himself, has to pull the car apart himself, doesn't want to go to the mechanic to get any instruction, so forth and so on. This dad who's independent, thinks it's okay to go to church and be beholding to God and to follow what God says and to follow his prescripts because he thinks that God is superior to him. Whoa! Do you wow. know, it's like, mm -hmm. it's That's a symbolic, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's mm -hmm. the breakdown of the natural symbolic order. And, you know, you think, oh, kids don't have all these you know, natural symbols inside of them. They don't view the father. You know, they, they, they didn't study sociology and figure that more men are likely to want to be autonomous, self-sufficient, and independent than uh, women are likely to be. You know, well, men are not about to ask for help. You know, when women are about to ask. They didn't take sociology. How, how would they know? I mean, how, how could little kids even come to that? you know, uh, sensibility. Well, if you've ever read anything about what's called the collective subconscious symbolism, right, uh, the so-called archetypal symbolism in kids' consciousness, oh, there is a big archetypal symbol for father and a big archetypal symbol for mother in that uh, kid's brain. And you say, but we didn't train them to do that. Well, you didn't train them to do that. But when they dream of fathers and mothers, they already have all the archetypal characteristics in the dream. And, of course, some of them have you know, no sensibility. They've not been trained. Of course, the father doesn't say, oh, you know, the father should be the protector of the family, whatever the case may be. Nevertheless, all the symbolism of father, all the symbolism, right, you know, of the independence, all the symbolism of not having need, all the symbolism of not being beholding, all the symbolism of I'm the protector, I'm the guy, uh, you know, who's the central, you know, part, as it were, the, the quasi hero. That symbolism is in a kid's brain, both boy and girl, both. And, of course, the mother as being the caretaker, the mother as being the one who extends compassion, the mother, uh, the one that, that can not only ask for help, but actually brings the, the family together through her ability uh, to be, um, you know, to, to, to not only ask for help, but to want uh, and ask for the protection of the father. I mean, can you imagine a man asking for, you know, I'm, oh, well, of course, if you got to go into battle, uh, you, you might want mm -hmm. help from your buddy, but you're not, you're not going to say, I, I need help. 
you know, to, to, to protect myself while I'm walking down the street or something, uh, when you're not in an, what's called an extraordinary circumstance, right, of combat. So the idea then is, yeah, men have, they convey that, but they not only convey it by what they do in their lives um, and what women do in their lives, it, it's, it's, I think there is a natural symbolism, an archetypal symbolism of mother and father. I think there's also mm-hmm. uh, an archetypal symbol, you know, um, for, uh, you know, for God. I think, you know, there's an archetypal symbol for the devil uh, that's in human beings. I mean, you don't have to train a kid to be scared of the boogeyman. You don't even have to train a kid that there is a boogeyman. You don't mm-hmm. have to train a kid that there is a, a devil out there. There's something that wills them evil you know, out there. I mean, they know, absolutely know. I mean, they're scared of it without any suggestion at all. Mommy, daddy, something's out trying to get me. You know, something with malevolent intentions is uh, nipping at my feet. Go under the covers. Okay. You know, so the, the point, of course, is, yeah, they know. They have that sense. Oh, do little boys have a sense of, of you know, <clears throat> heroism? In, in a sense, in a way uh, that little girls do not, you know, like, you know, brandish the sword, take out the garbage pail lid for your shield, and, you know, <laughs> let's get out there and whack away at one another, you know, uh, because, you know, there's the hero image. Well, it's, it is there. there there's it's no ingrained doubt. It's in them. Yeah. It's ingrained in them. And, of course, they don't have natural relational maternal capacities. I mean, let's face it, little boys are socially challenged compared to little girls. I mean, what my nieces recognized when they were six years old on a relational scale about what people were feeling, what people were thinking, et cetera, et cetera, within the household, oh, they were much better than when I was 21. You know, I mean, I just <laughs> couldn't believe. One day, my little niece, uh, I, I won't tell you her name, you'd be embarrassed if something she ever, ever told, but this is really the truth. She says uh, to me, uh, uh, Uncle Bobby, I know how to get you to do what I want. And I said, oh, yeah? Well, how? And she goes, Bambi eyes. You know, <laughs> blink, big blinking eyes. And I thought, wow. I figured that out when I was 23. You know, I mean, you know, I, I just can't believe it. I, you know, like, how do they know? How yes. do they get that sense you know, when you are kind of drifting away from, you know, um, what, what could be, you know, at least called, you know, relational, authentic relational response. How do they know? And whereas mm-hmm. a boy is just, you know, goes back to playing ball. He doesn't care. He doesn't respond. Right. They, you, you know, it's uh, there's something else going on. You say, well, it's not that black and white. No, it's not mm-hmm. that black and white. There's a little bit of, you know, what Jung would call the anima in a boy. And there's a little mm-hmm. bit of what Jung would call the animus. Right. The, the archetypal sensitivity to, uh, you know, the male archetype, you know, in a girl. Right. And so, you know, uh, uh, and so there of course there is. And in some women, the, the male archetype is exceedingly strong. And in some men, the, 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 the woman archetype is exceedingly strong. But in most cases, you know, it tends to, you know, these things are there. And so, you know, from the vantage point of, uh, you know, uh, you know, trying to uh, relate, as it were, you know, to uh, um, to to men, you know, the father generally, the natural symbol of the father is independence. 
And when the independent figure is humble and beholding to God, and when he says, I submit myself to the moral authority of that God so that there's authority over the Father, and the Father acknowledges the authority over him and acknowledge that he is held bound and responsible uh, morally by the authority over him, it speaks volumes. That means it gives them permission. It gives mm -hmm. all the children mm -hmm. permission to, to also God be... in independence and self-sufficiency. Exactly. It's fascinating, Father Spitzer, because so often we hear these studies about how if a father practices faith, then the children will too. And if they don't, the children won't. You just cited some incredible studies, including one from Switzerland on this. In mm -hmm. Very rarely do we hear the full explanation of this. And I think those two key ideas that fathers represent independence and self-sufficiency because fathers represent the whole wide world to their children. You know, children mm -hmm. have this identity wrapped up with their mothers mm -hmm. from, you know, being carried by them, being nursed by them, being reared by them. Uh, but dad, mm -hmm. you know, leaves more. He goes off to work. There's a, a further separation. Mm -hmm. So that independence and self-sufficiency that kids learn from their fathers is so profound that for you to make that connection of helping them to understand you can still be independent and self-sufficient with God speaks volumes. And I think especially when we see, you know, in the 21st century, many young women want to be independent and self-sufficient as well. Mm -hmm. And many, I think it's very much so part of the feminist movement that's bred into young girls today. This is a leading cause for why young girls today are still looking to their fathers for those examples of religion based on independence mm -hmm. and self-sufficiency. Oh, yeah. I would also say, too, you know, there's a book by a lady named Carol Gilligan, and she was a student of um, Lawrence Kohlberg, who, you know, the fellow who did the stages of moral development. Um, and uh, she wrote a book called In a Different Voice. And um, what uh, Gilligan basically tries to show, and by the way, this is a thesis that Edith Stein who wrote a, a fantastic uh, essay Love called her. Empathy. Um, mm. Yeah, did you did you have you read her book uh, on uh, on women? Um, that yes, is a fantastic book. book. Yes, yeah, amazing. I've not read the essay on empathy though. Yeah, that is a very good essay, and the main thing that Gil Gilligan agrees with um, uh, Stein, Edith Stein, and uh, um, now Saint Teresa Benedict of the Cross. But the point is that um, women are what she calls unmediated. Um, uh, you know, emotion. They, they, they prefer a relationship that is not mediated by language, logic, game playing, uh, anything else. They don't want it, um, something to translate whether or not I like you into it. They just rather hear in some form of empathy or some signal of empathy or some kind of felt relationship they want an indication of relationship. So just call it unmediated or, you know, uh, maybe, you know, um, uh, you know, a direct and unmediated relationship with another human being. Now, a man, on the other hand, wants definitely a mediated relationship. Um, he doesn't want to express emotion directly. He does not want to feel emotion directly. His preference is, if I want to tell you that I like you, 
then you play baseball with me. And if you play by the rules, and we, right, if we get, why does the man get so concentrated on the rules? Because rules prevent fights. And if you prevent a fight, the friendship remains. But remember, the relationship is mediated by the game. So the idea then is uh, for the man, if we can have a, let's say, a discussion and we can get to a scientific truth, and we did this together, and we had a great intellectual discussion, therein lies the fact that we're friends. We're bonded by this pursuit of truth, which we mutually like, or the rules of science and logic that we mutually respect, or the rules of baseball or football that we mutually observe or even the rules of morality that we mutually observe. Now you can sort of say, oh, that is different because you know, you'll know you notice, for example, that little girls don't have any problem with saying to their mom and dad, well, I love you, and uh, even to the brother or sister that they love you. you know, love right. is a word that makes perfect sense in an unmediated way. Whereas if you do that to a boy, it'll almost be like incomprehensible uh, until one day he kind of thinks about it and he goes, hmm, you know, and I'm, this happened, you know, my good nephew, I, again, I won't mention this nephew's name, you'll be embarrassed, but one day, right, you know, my sister calls me up and she goes, you're never going to believe what happened. I said, what happened? He says, well, you know, we're driving down the street and Nicholas is saying, look at the airplane, look at the you know, uh, the truck, look at the whatever, the bulldozer, you know, and so forth and so on. And then he thinks about it, thinks about it, thinks about it. He turns around and he goes, you know, Mommy, I love you. And Louise said, I almost drove the car off the freeway. I hadn't Aww. heard this from my male, you know, the whole time. But he really thought about it. He came to it and mm -hmm. he meant it sincerely. But it's not natural. You know, mm -hmm. you, you have to kind of think it through. But anyway, you know, it's typical unmediated, I mean, uh, a, a typical mediated male, unmediated um, lady. Wow. It's phenomenal to see these ingrained human nature differences between male and female and how these play out in the way our faith is passed on, the important role of fathers in conveying the faith. And it speaks volumes to the importance of fathers building yourselves up in your faith. If you have questions ask them. That's okay. That's a good thing. And this is why I love the resource you have, Father Spitzer, CredibleCatholic.com, free online articles and learning modules to dive deeper into your faith for free. So please check those out. Thank you so much for joining us. That's been Father Robert Spitzer, president of the Magis Center and the Spitzer Center. We'll check out his website. We'll post a link on social media as well as in the podcast notes. I'll be right back here on Trending during our weekly Gentleman's Hour to talk about what do you do when you're scared to say something to your spouse. I was asked this by one man recently. thought it would be a great conversation to have today on Trending. Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome back to our weekly Gentleman's Hour. If you have a question, I'd love to take it. The number is 1-888-914-9149. Or you can ask your question live now on Instagram. 
Okay, so last week I posted on my social media uh paraphrasing a quote from Cassie Kanubi, where it's a, one of the church's documents for married spouses. And in that document, it talks about how the woman is the heart of the home and the husband is the head of the home. And so I was talking during the show last week, and I mentioned that the woman is the heart of the home meant to be working with the head of the home, that is, the man. Well, I was fascinated to receive a tweet response uh, from Ben on Twitter, who said, can you tell that to my wife, please? I'm kind of scared of her. Oof. (laughs) That was one of those moments where I literally, oof. And I was thinking about it. Isn't that a difficult topic? In, In marriages, what do you do when you're scared to say something to your spouse? I think everyone's been there in momentary moments or maybe prolonged seasons where you just don't feel like you you can say something to your own spouse. And I will admit, I'll raise my hand, I'm guilty of making my husband feel this way. Uh, Where he, he said, you know, there have been moments where I felt like I'm walking on eggshells and I'm afraid to say something to you. And Thank God my husband is not just going to sit there and allow that to continue to happen or to fester or build in our marriage. And it's a big warning sign for me that I'm being a royal pain in the butt. And thankfully, my husband has communicated that when it's been a real problem. It's been a reality check for me. You know, my my problem, my pride, my oversensitivity, uh, maybe lack of control of my emotions from overreacting to anger to a failure to listen. There's so many things that can be going on that make us maybe scary to talk to at times and the this can swing in both directions so what do you do I think first of all it's important we're always making sure that when we're addressing something and of course especially within the context of our marriage isn't a rational or irrational thing to address and is this really something I can change it's that whole idea of the sphere of concern those things that we can't change but we can be concerned about and stress ourselves out, or the sphere of change. Now, I was looking at an article on Focus on the Family. I'll have to post on social media in the podcast notes. Check them out, relevantradio.com forward slash trending, or find me on social media at Timmerie, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. The title of the article was Afraid to Communicate with Spouse About Sensitive Issues from Focus on the Family. And one line in there was, I think, really just a good hit to the gut that if you are having a hard time communicating something to your spouse, whether out of fear of their reaction, because they're scary, as this man saying his wife is scary, or because it's just a sensitive topic, the Focus on the Family article said, if the thought of discussing a sensitive subject has you feeling fearing your spouse's reaction, you're losing focus. And I think that that should be the first thing we're thinking about. If a sensitive topic is leaving us afraid of our spouse's reaction, we're losing focus of what the real issue is, that specific topic, that issue, that idea. So what the article from Focus on the Family focuses on is some key tips, I think, to work through this. And first, they acknowledge, and I think this is really important, that when tough topics come up, often it provides, unfortunately, an opportunity to just absolutely fall into a ditch as a couple and for our worst moments to come up. But it's also important to recognize that a lot of this comes from the way we've seen the functioning of interactions before. And it can point to a lack of skills, maybe in your family of origin or in your past experience, in pitfalls that were dug 
holes that were dug before you even got married. And it's a matter of learning how to manage conflict with a spouse. Even when your spouse is scary and maybe you need to tell them that they're outright being scary. Again, my husband has told me this before. But it's also a matter of not always that it can be a family of origin and lack of model, but also it can be that you just don't have the experience. And so the focus on the family article, it talks about two big things, errors to stay away from. Number one, when addressing something with your spouse, don't make the error of avoiding the conflict at any cost. And second, don't escalate the conflict into an unmanageable chaos. So don't avoid it altogether and don't let it become so big that it just turns into an absolute disaster. Now, I think that this is where communication skills help. I really do think we live in an age where we are failing at communication, especially millennials on down, millennials and our social media use. It's really caused an interpersonal crisis in communication and relationships. But you also look at Gen X. Gen X is really the first generation to see that multiple generations of divorce and the brokenness with modeling proper communication styles in marriage. And so we have really three three generations now where communication has been damaged. And so books on communication are key. I'm going to post a link on uh, in the podcast notes to one book on communication that's recommended. But look up courses or look up even just articles on active listening, how to communicate. There's so many tips. We'll actually have to do that topic uh, perhaps you know what? We'll do it tomorrow during our weekly marriage hour. We'll talk about active listening and good communication still. So stay tuned tomorrow on trending. But let's talk about some simple things. First of all, in a sensitive situation, believe it or not, things such as body language, word choice, the tone of your voice, all really do make a difference. Also timing. You know, is it the right time to talk about something? Are there too many distractions? Is it a high stress point in the middle of the week? I know that's one thing that's hard for me when I want to talk about something that's really on my mind and I'm focused in on it. And sometimes I'll harass my husband uh, when maybe it's a really stressful work week and perhaps I should just wait till the weekend because it really is something that can be addressed on the weekend. Or maybe there are too many distractions that will prevent this issue from actually being addressed. Now, one thing that the focus on the family article mentions is when you have a serious conversation you need to have, start it with prayer. Now, sometimes I think some people maybe feel, I'm not just, I'm not there yet, or I would feel really awkward saying, honey, let's pray and then let's talk about this issue. The goal would be that we should get there, right? That should be hashtag relationship goals moment. But I think some things that maybe are easier in one of those moments where, thank God, we have routine prayers as Catholics. You don't have to you know, kind of create your own ad lib prayer is we do have the mass. We do have the rosary and you can set yourself up for success in a conversation by saying, hey, I want to talk to you about something. Don't worry. It's just I want to talk about some stuff with our marriage or maybe it's finances, the kids, whatever it might be. But set yourself up for success and maybe plan a time. Hey, let's go to morning mass together, a daily mass on a Saturday morning. Let's pray rosary together and then let's take time to talk about this issue. And the idea is the focus on the family article mentioned focus on the conversation and the principle of what you're talking about. Focus on what is right, not who is right or who is wrong. And I think that's really helpful, especially because this whole conversation and idea was sprung by my posting a very controversial thing that the church teaches about the woman being the heart of the home and the husband being the head of the home. And that ladies, we are called to cooperate with the head of the home. And one man tweeted at me saying, 
this is great. Can you please tell that to my wife? I'm scared of her. And the legitimacy of that tweet that was sent to me was so poignant when I read it because that's the reality. Sometimes we don't live out the ideal, the principle, or what is right because we're afraid. And this is where I come back to that passage in or the part of the article from Focus on the Family. If the thought of discussing a sensitive subject has you fearing your spouse's reaction, you're losing focus. If something so important about your marriage, your family life, your faith, say it, even if you're afraid, but set yourself up for success. Maybe that means working on communication. Maybe that means reading a book, reading an article, working on those skills. I think a biblical take on this as well is that God doesn't call us to be lukewarm. He calls us to be, he does not call us to be okay with a status quo. He calls us to make sure that we understand and know when things need to change and need to change in him. And we also can't be so prideful and unforgiving to think that, well, I'm the one who's going to control the change or to think that my spouse is the one who will prevent the change from ever occurring. That's pride on our part or a lack of forgiveness toward them on our part as well. When we follow God's will, he does move mountains. And I'm talking about the stubbornness of me, myself, and I sometimes, not just our spouses. This is why we need to pray for ourselves, our spouses, to follow the ideals of marriage and actually study what they are. And in difficult situations to recognize when these things are important, we need to address them. And I think there's another dimension of our faith that is very helpful in communication. Whenever I'm getting ready to have a difficult or complicated conversation with someone, it's important to invoke the Holy Spirit, asking God, you know, not my will, but thy will be done. And come, Holy Spirit, give me the words to speak your truth and to come to your truth in this conversation with this person. Help them to hear what they need to hear in your truth and vice versa. And God will provide in an abundance the Holy Spirit will work in you. You'll be amazed by what can be accomplished by entering into these difficult situations with prayer. But also remember we have each our own guardian angel. They're there to help guide us. And our guardian angels are key. Have you ever thought to pray to your guardian angel to help in communicating to another person? To ask your guardian angel or to ask the other person's guardian angel to help you in properly approaching someone or to help the person you're trying to talk to and being open to the conversation? The Holy Spirit, our guardian angels, they're there. We tend to get so focused on the human dimension, forgetting the human dimension includes the supernatural. God is calling us to more than being comfortable or avoiding discomfort. He's calling us to sacrifice. And I think these opportunities in marriage where conflict arises, where we're perhaps scared of a spouse, there's a lot of opportunity for sacrifice and growth. And God will work with you. He will not ignore your request and your desire for transformation. So pray on it. Pray with it. And dive and go deep into it. I think of the words of St. Paul in, in Romans chapter 12. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't conform to the mundane and the comfortable. 
Offer your body, St. Paul says, as a living sacrifice. Our minds, our hearts, our bodies, our wills, and that includes what we do in our marriages to follow the will of God. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. Real quick, a couple questions came in on Instagram during our weekly gentleman's hour today. One book was, what book recommendations do you have for men? Love books, love this question. St. Alphonsus Liguori's book, Preparation for Death, is a fantastic book. 10 out of 10 recommend. I love it. My husband loves it and a lot of my male friends. It's been transformative for them. It's a good kick in the pants with regard to your whole life. Also, I think a lot of, uh, Father Robert Spitzer is a great guest today. I think he speaks poignantly to men, to the desire for happiness, for, to the desire for transcendence, and the desire for tr- truths and proofs for the existence of God. So check out Father Robert Spitzer's book as well. We'll post a link on social media to Father Spitzer's website. Have you joined us yet for our weekly happy hour on trending? This is Tim Ray from Trending with Tim Ray. Mondays, we discuss everything from happiness although it's fleeting, to joy, which is rooted in God. We address midlife crises, prayer, friendship, job satisfaction, and you name it, because who doesn't want to have lasting happiness, joy, rooted in God? Join me daily at 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.